call when you had nothing. Was on the block trying to prove something. That was no place for a brother like you. One like three piece sitting on the first pew. And yeah, that's you. Good kid with a big heart. When everything around you was so dark. You expect Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Can I Say This at Church podcast. Got a great guest lined up for you today. A guest that he's going to say some things that are going to push you. And he's going to say some things that you have probably never heard and never been taught. Uh, They are important. And they are controversial because they're true. They are challenging. And I can't think of a better topic to discuss than what we're going to talk about today. Uh, That topic is the doctrine of discovery. We'll go over what that is. We will go over why it matters and that will scale all the way up to 2018, to the world that we live in now. My guest today is Mark Charles. He is dynamic, he's thought-provoking, he's a public speaker, he's passionate, and you can hear that when he speaks. When he talks about the doctrine of discovery, you will hear insights that you've never heard. You'll hear complexities of American history and how it interweaves with race and culture. And you will hear for conciliation not reconciliation uh, of our country and the church and its role in that and so here we go We are joined today on the Can I Say This at Church podcast by Mark Charles, who is who is many things, many, many things. So Mark, I'm sure there's going to be many that, that are listening that are unfamiliar with you uh, that I would recommend that they get familiar with you. I love the work that you're doing. Can you give us just a, a little bit about yourself, just a, a brief intro? Yeah. Uh, thank you, Seth. It's great to speak with you and be on your podcast with you today. Uh, let me start by introducing myself in Navajo. So Yate. Mark Charles Yenashia, Sinbake Dana Nishlin, Totohiglini Bashachin, Sinbake Dana Bashache, Totohichini Bashanella. So, in the Navajo culture, when you introduce yourself, you always give your four clans. We're a matrilineal people, and our identities come from our mother's mother. So, my mother's mother is American of Dutch heritage, and so I say Sinbake Dana, which translated means I'm from the wooden shoe people. My father's mother, my second clan, is Toihiglini, which is the waters that flow together. My third clan, um, my mother's father, is also Tsinbake Dene'a. Then my fourth clan, my father's father, is Totichitni, and that's the Bitterwater clan. It's one of the original clans of our Navajo people. I have uh, been working on issues of justice regarding uh, Native peoples for probably about 10 or 15 years. I grew up in the Southwest in a border town to the Navajo Reservation called Gallup, New Mexico. Um, I attended a school that was in the process of transitioning from being a boarding school to a day school. Um, And so uh, I had many friends who were there as boarding school students and I was there as a day school student. Um, But a lot of my work on the social justice part of it came uh, both out of pastoring a church in Denver called the Christian Indian Center and then as a result of that work, moving back to the Navajo Reservation and living 
for a total of 11 years, but for three years, we were in a very remote section of our reservation, living on a sheep camp in a one-room Hogan, 25-foot diameter, log walls, dirt floor, no running water, no electricity, living with a family that wove rugs and herded sheep for a living. Mm. And that experience of being in that community and feeling and, and understanding and experiencing firsthand the intense marginaliz- marginalization and ongoing oppression of Native peoples uh, forever changed me. And it, it really, uh, my blog, in fact, is called Reflections from the Hogan. That's when I started blogging and just began thinking about the situation of my people on our reservation and then all the world that's happening right outside of our borders in the very country we're living in. But the two worlds are so completely different um, that it, to this day, I'm still processing through some of those differences and what do those differences mean? Yeah. Does what does Hogan mean? Is that does that mean I'm I'm from from kind of yeah. So the Hogan is the traditional dwelling of our Navajo people. Okay. Six sided building. Um, in in the tradition, there's a female and a male Hogan um, used within our different ceremonies. Um, so, but the, the Hogan is really the center of the life for the Navajo people. It's, it's where we do our ceremonies. It, every, it's very meaningful. There's a lot of tradition around it. So, uh, yeah. yeah, it's a very sacred place for us as Navajo people. Well, you're in D.C. now, correct? Yes, we so, moved here about three years ago. So what do you do now? I am a speaker and a writer. Um, I do some preaching. I'm working on a book right now. Uh, my co-author, Sing Chan Ra. And I are putting the finishing touches on our manuscript for our book. Hopefully, will be out later, 2018, um, late fall, early winter. Uh, the title of the book is "Truth Be Told," and it's going to be published through Ivy Press. They've got a lot of good books, and um, I like I like Soon Chong quite a bit. I like the stuff that he has to say, and I, and and I like the stuff that you've been saying as well. So, your book, "Truth Be Told," what? truth are you telling well a lot of my work um for the past probably seven or eight years has centered around the doctrine of discovery and it's uh for those who don't know what the doctrine of discovery is it's a series of papal bulls written in the um 1400s um the 15th century so 1452 pope nicholas v wrote invade search out capture vanquish and subdue all saracens and pagans whatsoever um, reduce their persons to perpetual slavery, convert them to his and their use and profit. Uh, these are statements from this papal bull um, called Dum Diversus, which was the first in a series of papal bulls written between 50, 1452 and 1493 that are collectively called the Doctrine of Discovery. It's essentially the church in Europe saying to the nations of Europe, wherever you go, whatever lands you find not ruled by white European Christian rulers, those people are less than human and their land is yours for the taking. Mm. So that's quite simply the doctrine that allowed European nations to colonize Africa, enslave the African people. Um, they didn't believe them to be human. Yeah. It's the same doctrine let Columbus, who's lost at sea, land in this new world inhabited by millions and claim to have discovered it. Yeah, yeah you know, I um I had that talk with my son not too long ago. He's in um he's in third grade and he yeah. brought home his Columbus study guide and I'm reading it with some of the stuff that I've learned over the past few years, I was like, this is not even, why is this on the the standard of learning test that he has to grade? Like this is not even truthful. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, I'm just very simple. Just you can't discover lands already inhabited. Agreed. Stealing. <laughs> yeah. The fact that to this day we refer to what Columbus did in our history books, in our holidays, in our in our statues and memorials, we refer to him as the discoverer of America. That reveals the implicit bias of the nation, which is people of color, indigenous peoples aren't fully human. Right. And then so to take that to an essence of time, there's how has today's church then used, I guess, that Catholic, that Catholic doctrine or creed or rules or whatever you want that manifest to to bring us the history of our country now that we live in? Yeah. So so much of this of the book that I'm writing with Sung Chan is about the, the dysfunctional theological assumptions of the church. And when in the book, I actually, and in my writings on my blog, I actually take the dysfunction and the, the, the schism all the way back to the first, second and third centuries. If you, if you listen to the teachings of Jesus, if you look at the early church, there's no teaching there about Christian empire. Mm-hmm. Jesus was very adamant. He his kingdom was somewhere else. He wasn't here to create a new imperial order here on earth. And yet, when Constantine, um, fourth century, becomes emperor of Rome, he converts to Christianity and creates Christendom. In complete contrast to what Jesus told taught, he creates a Christian empire, and that fundamentally changes what it means to be the church. The church prior to that was was persecuted, it was oppressed, it was prophetic, it spoke against the empire. Um, you became a member of the church through your baptism, your confession, your discipleship, and your community. Now, after Constantine and the creation of the Christian empire, now your membership in the church is dependent upon your citizenship in the empire. And so this, this realignment has huge consequences for the church. We see it even in the next century when the theologians of the day, uh, primarily Augustine, they begin wrestling with the problem because now that you have a Christian empire, now you have Christian citizens who are out fighting the wars, killing in the name of the empire. A plain text reading of Jesus' teaching doesn't allow that. Yeah. So that's where we begin to see the theological gymnastics of Augustine and other theologians creating a just war theory and really trying to find a way to justify their colluding with empire to find a way for, for the, the Christian citizen to still fight the battles of the empire without feeling a, without, <laughs> without having any conflict morally with the church and with the theologies of the church. Yeah. And so I actually published an article last summer. Um, it's on my blog. It's called where Augustine goes off the rails. And I spent a lot of time looking, um, you know, I've, I've been talking about Augustine for probably three or four years. And I was looking for where does he where does he go wrong? The fact that he's advocating for a just war theory is, I would say, proof he's outside of the thinking of Jesus. Mm-hmm. But I was looking for where did he go off the rails? At what point did he, you know, where when whenever Jesus confronted with people who try to combine his teachings with the world, he gets reacts very strongly. He and, calls And to define just war for those that are unfamiliar, that is what? It's okay for me to kill you because Jesus says it's okay, or is that an overgeneralization? The just war theory really had two purposes. Um A, because now it's just war because you have a Christian empire. Mm-hmm. And so one of the one of the components of just war is uh how do you fight wars more justly? 
And the second component is how do you justify Christian citizens fighting the wars of the empire? And so there's really two components. And in his writings, when he talks about the two kingdoms, uh, in his in his writings, St. Augustine, he's very clear that the kingdom of, of heaven is not Christendom. But he also um, doesn't, he kind of says, but it seems to be better than being persecuted. So let's try and make this work. <laughs> It's the lesser of two evils, so let's yeah, roll with and it. So, and I mean, so he's wrestling with what I would say is a very real theological problem, which is you have a Christian empire which doesn't exist in the scriptures. So how do you how do you deal with it? And unfortunately, instead of speaking prophetically to the church and saying we have to get out of bed with the empire, Augustine decides, let, how do we make this theologically work? Which is how he gets the just war theory. Mm-hmm. Now, if you look, I, I spent probably two years looking through his writings on the two kingdoms to see where did he go off the rails. And it wasn't until this last summer when I was reading some books towards the end of his life on, um, he writes about the Donatists, one of his books called On Correction of the Donatists. Now the Donatists are a schism group. They're teaching heresy. They've kind of been a thorn in the church's side and Augustine's side most of his life. And he's, he's wrestling with what do we do with them and in this in this uh, this chapter, he's he's debating what is the role of the Christian king in a Christian empire, and he concludes that the role of the Christian king in the Christian empire. Um, and let me actually read this to you because uh, it, it's kind of it's kind of shocking. It says, "How then are the kings to serve the Lord with fear, except by preventing and chastising with religious severity all those acts which are done in opposition to the commandments of the Lord? For a man serves God in one way, in that he is a man, and another in that he is also king. In that he is man, he serves God by living faithfully, but in that he is king, he serves God by enforcing with suitable rigor such laws as to ordain what is righteous and punish what is the reverse. So he's arguing here that the role of a Christian king in the Christian empire is to use the resources of the state to enforce the commands of the church or the commands of God or the theologies of the church. Mm-hmm. That's in chapter five. In chapter six, he, he goes on and says, it's indeed better that men should be led to worship God by teaching than they should be driven to it by fear of punishment or pain. But that does not follow that because the former course produces the better man. Therefore, those who do not yield to it should be neglected. For many have found advantage in first being compelled by fear or pain that they might afterwards be influenced by teaching or follow out and act in, in the way they had already learned in word. So now he's saying the, the role of a Christian king in a Christian empire is to use fear, punishment, and pain to compel people to obey the commands of God. Well, yeah. this, is where, this is where he's completely outside the teachings of Jesus. Jesus never advocated for this, um, you know? And so I'm convinced if Jesus would have, if he would have spoken these words to Jesus, Jesus would have turned to him and said, get behind me, Satan. Yeah. You are on the side of men, not of God. I mean, clearly he is off the rails outside of the, of the boundaries of Jesus here. Yeah. Teaching. And that doctrine of fear sounds a lot like, I just finished reading a book by um, Brian Zahn, uh, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, which is a, an about face of Jonathan Edwards sinners in the hands of an angry God. And what you yeah. just said, sounds a lot like that, that he's so mad at you that he's got to punish somebody and it, you better hope to God. It's not you, 
or we're gonna you're you're gonna wish that it wasn't. Um, yeah, I, I was at a conference, a consultation with Brian just about maybe a year ago, and he heard me teach on this, and mm-hmm. he was actually really kind of uh, grateful for it because it, it filled in, I think, a, a few. It, it aligned very well with some of what he teaches and what what he advocates for. Yeah, uh, in regards to the teachings of Jesus. But yeah, this. So finding that point where I mean, this is what over the years so now that we have the christian king enforcing the empire the theologies of the church this is what leads into the crusades and then it's actually uh, several centuries later where we have another theologian of the day thomas aquinas and he is he is basically going a step further and he uh in his writings on heretics he basically says, well, if the the state has the right to kill um, men because they break man's commands, how much more does the church have the right to kill people who break God's commands? Mm-hmm. So Thomas Aquinas takes it a step further and basically says, well, the church has every right to kill people who are disobeying the commands of God. Um, and so this is really this is this is in what the the. 1600s, I believe, when Thomas Aquinas is writing. Uh, um, I know it's not that late. It's uh, it's the 11th and 12th centuries when he's writing. Yeah. So this is then what is forming the church in its thinking. In the the centuries after that, the church begins to identify this new category of other that it calls the infidel. So you mean other is in quotes to the, the Moors and to the Muslims? Yeah. Later, it's applied to indigenous peoples, anyone who doesn't uh, anyone who's not Christian, the God of the white European Christian, and so then it's out of that in the in the 15th century that Pope Nicholas V writes his papal bull Dum Diversus, where he says, "Invade, search out, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens and pagans whatsoever." So the doctrine of discovery comes out of this this uh, really conscious choice by the Church back. In the, in the first few centuries of the church, when Constantine creates a Christian empire, the church doesn't speak prophetically against that. It begins colluding with it through the teachings of Augustine, and that eventually results in what we call the doctrine of discovery in the 15th century. Yeah. Now, the challenge is that doctrine gets embedded into the foundations of the nation. So, uh, you know, we have the Declaration of Independence, which begins with these words, all men are created equal. Mm-hmm. And 30 lines later, it refers to natives as merciless Indian savages. Making it very clear the only reason our founding fathers use this inclusive term all men because they have a very narrow definition of who's actually human. Our constitution very similarly starts with the words in the preamble, we the people of the United States. Article 1, Section 2, the section that defines who is and who is not a part of this union, who is not and who is protected by this constitution. Article 1, Section 2, it never mentions women. It specifically excludes natives, and it counts Africans as three-fifths of a person. Yeah. What pushback do you get? So I hear that, and being born in Texas, I'm like, man, don't attack my Declaration of Independence by God. That's that's God-ordained. That might as well be Scripture. So what pushback do you get from people when you say that? Because I will say, I've heard you say that once before, and I had to pause it and pull it up and read it, I was like, man, how, I mean, they don't teach that. So yeah. 
understandably, because I'm in the position of power. So why would I give up that power? Why would I impose a term limit, for lack of a better metaphor? So what what pushback do you get from people when when you bring that up? Well, that's the the one of the things I'm very intentional about is I don't quote experts, I don't quote historians or theologians. I quote the source text. So when you read the Declaration, you know, so the history of the Declaration is um, in 1763, King George draws a line down the Appalachian Mountains. And he basically says to the colonies that they no longer have the right of discovery of the empty Indian lands west of Appalachia. This upsets the colonies. They want access to those lands. So a few years later, they write their letter of protest. In their letter, they give several reasons of why they are declaring their independence. One of their reasons is that he has raised the conditions of new appropriations of land. That's one of the conditions. And then the last condition they give is that he has he has brought upon our borders the merciless Indian savages. And, you know, so very clearly, it, this is one of their justification for why they're declaring independence. They're upset that they lost the right of discovery mm-hmm. to empty Indian lands. Again, when you read the Constitution, everyone knows the preamble. But when you read down through it, so if you read the Constitution cover to cover, I, I actually did this last summer just as an exercise, you will see that beginning with the preamble and going through the final amendment, there are 51 gender-specific male pronouns. Who can run for office, who can hold office, even who's protected by the Constitution, he, him, and his. There's not a single female pronoun in the entire, entire Constitution. We've never abolished slavery. The 13th Amendment states that neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereas the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States. Slavery is completely legal, according to the Constitution. It's just under the jurisdiction of our criminal justice system. So arrest them first and then do whatever you want with them. Yeah. So this is... (laughs) So the United States of America incarcerates people at the highest rate of any country in the world. Yeah. For every 100,000 citizens, we incarcerate 693. Um, When we break it down by people of color, it's even worse. And so people don't, the problem is people don't read our documents. Mm -hmm. So people think I'm I'm an expert on these things merely because I've read them. (laughs) So, but then it gets even worse. So, in 1823, we have a Supreme Court case. This is Johnson versus McIntosh. It's two men of European descent. They're litigating over a single piece of land. One of them gets the land from a native tribe, the other one gets it from the government. They want to know who owns it. The case goes all the way to the Supreme Court. Now, the court. So, I want to re- decide- re say that. So, one of them bought the land from a tribe, and the other one yeah. bought the land from Uncle Sam. And so, the they're arguing land. over who had ownership. So, they wanted to know who owned it all the way to the Supreme Court. So the court has to decide on the principle for land titles. Now, this is the Marshall Court, John Marshall's Court, 1823. And they ruled that the principle was that discovery gave title to the government by whose subjects or by whose authority it was made against all other European governments. And that title might be consummated by possession. Then they go on and they reference the doctrine of discovery and they they they. Um, create a difference between aboriginal title, which is what they say natives have, which is the right of occupancy to land, like a fish would occupy water, a bird Mm -hmm. would occupy air, 
And then they define fee title, which comes from the right of discovery, which is what Europeans have. And therefore, the court rules that Europeans are the true title holders. Now, this precedent, this case, along with a few others during that era, create the legal precedent for land titles. Now, this precedent and the doctrine of discovery get referenced as a legal document by the court in 1954, in 1985, and most recently in 2005. So you can't claim it's ancient history. It's it's no, still, it's, yeah. 2005, the city of Sherrill versus the Oneida Indian Nation of New York. In the footnote of that case, they referenced the doctrine of discovery. I read somewhere, and this is slightly off topic, but I read somewhere during, and it's been in the last few years, it was before the pipeline issues going through up in the um, it's the Dakotas, I think, right? The pipeline, yes. Um, yes. And they had a, a Native American or, or, or come on and and say, he's like, you don't seem to understand. I can't own a house because I have to ask my representative in Congress, who isn't really even my representative. So I have to ask my representative to ask the actual congressman representative to ask the government to give me permission to build a foundation so that I can build a house on the land that I kind of own. Yeah. So what most people don't understand, you'll hear the term uh, Indian reservations and tribal sovereignty thrown around a lot. I tell people that as native tribes, we are sovereign over our land. Like your teenage child is sovereign over their bedroom. (laughs) They have a bedroom. They can put a sign on the door, but whose house is the bedroom in? I'm not keeping out. It's my house. Yeah. Yeah. And so what people don't know is that our tribes don't own our reservation lands. Those lands are held in trust for us by the federal government. That's sweet of them. And so so on the reservation, one of the reasons why economic development is so challenging is because you don't own any of the land. Yes, you can't can't uh, get lending on it or build on it or anything. So again, what's the what what's the, the the sense or the point of and then, you know, for most Americans, their largest investment is their house. Mm-hmm. Because, again, it can appreciate in value. It can hold your wealth for a long time and so on and so forth. Most Native peoples, our biggest investment is our cars. Because we can't, if we live on the reservation, we can't own our, I mean, we can, we can build a house on our, on, our, on our land, but we can never sell it. We can never, there's no, there's no return on investment there. And so because of that, most of the houses on the reservations are either built by government entities, either tribe or state or federal governments, or they're just kind of put together shacks, again, because it's not an investment for people. Yeah. You're never going to get your money back by investing in your house. back to to church what are some of the ways in the i guess the last 50 years the last 75 years the church has been complicit in the ongoing abuse of this of this doctrine of discovery yeah so the there's so many ways if you go back in the the 1630s 
1630, initially the Protestant church pushed back against the doctrine of discovery. This was a Catholic doctrine. 1630, John Winthrop is in the Boston Harbor with a group of colonists. They're actually going to plant the Boston colony. So it's not the Boston Harbor yet, but that's where they are. Mm -hmm. And he preaches a sermon um, called A Model of Christian Charity. Now, in his sermon, he refers to the colonists that he's with as a city on a hill. He's borrowing from the language of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, where he tells his disciples to be a lamp on a stand, a city on a hill, shining their good deeds into this dark world. Mm -hmm. John goes on his sermon, and he he, uh, exhorts the people in all meekness, gentleness, patience, and liberality. They should rejoice together, mourn together, labor, and suffer together. He's giving them a basic Protestant Christian church sermon when he's to listen to his words he quotes from deuteronomy chapter 30 now deuteronomy 30 is the passage in the old testament where the people of israel are standing at the banks of the jordan river ready to cross over and take possession of their promised land and god is reiterating the threats and promises of his land covenant with them. If you obey me, I'll do these things for you. If you disobey me, I'll do these things to you. The end of that passage in Deuteronomy 30, it says, but if our hearts shall turn away so that we will not obey and worship other gods, we shall surely perish out of the good land whether we pass over this river to possess it. Now, Jonathan Winthrop quotes this passage in his sermon, but he changes the word river whether we pass over this river to possess it, he changes that to vast sea. Now, why would he do that? Well, because they didn't cross a river, they crossed an ocean. Mm -hmm. So what's he implying? Based on Jesus' exhortations to be a city on a hill, based on God's land covenant with the people of Israel, they are standing at the banks of their promised land, ready to cross over and take possession of them. Huh. Now, yeah. yeah, and then George says, no, you can't go past the mountain chain. Well, for anyone who reads the book of Joshua, how do the Israelites take possession of their promised land? Oh, they slaughter everybody. Everywhere they, they go, them. they kill God everyone. God literally commands them, leave no animal, no woman, no child left alive. So promised lands for the people of Israel is literally God-ordained genocide for the indigenous peoples, the peoples of those lands. Mm-hmm. So I call that sermon the birth of American exceptionalism. So this idea percolates for about 100 years. This is the 1630s. Mid-1700s, the nation begins expanding westward. We go past the Appalachian Mountains, past the Mississippi River. We make our Declaration of Independence. Um, End of the 1700s, um, there's there's the... The uh, Second Great Awakening begins taking place. There's this growth in churches, a renewal in denominations. There's this religious fervor as our nation is moving further and further west. And then early 1800s, the term manifest destiny is coined. This belief that this nation has the God-given right to rule these lands from sea to shining sea. If you look at the, the 19th century, the 1800s, most people aren't aware of this, but between 1839 in 1898, the United States of America gives away 425 medals of honor, the highest medal a U.S. soldier can can receive for their participation in the Indian Wars. 
This includes 18 medals of honor for the massacre at Wounded Knee specifically. Now, at the massacre at Wounded Knee, one of the things that happened, this is where 350 Dakota men, women, and child are slaughtered in a single day by the U.S. Army. One of the weapons that they used in that massacre was called the Hotchkiss Rifle. It's a 37-millimeter rifle that shoots like 60 rounds per minute, maybe 70 rounds per minute, uh, accurate up to 2,000 yards. So the machine gun of its time. Yeah, so when, when the peace talks break down, and gun start, gunfire starts up, the, the army is, is, is um, shooting these Hotchkiss rifles down on the people. And several of the Dakota people, many of them, run into a nearby ravine to seek shelter from that gunfire. Now, if you go onto the army's website and look up their medals of honor, you will find a section where they list the medals of honor for those who fought in the Indian Wars. And if you scroll down, you can find those awarded at Wounded Knee. And let me read, I'll just read these for your listeners. So here are three reasons, three medals that they awarded, and these are the reasons why. One, while the Indians were concealed in a ravine, assisted men in the skirmish line, directing their fire, etc., and using every effort to dislodge the enemy. Two, voluntarily led a party into a ravine to dislodge Sioux Indians concealed therein. He was wounded during this action. Three, while engaged with Indians concealed in a ravine, he assisted the men on the skirmish line, directing their fire, encouraged them by example, and used every effort to dislodge the enemy. So as these men, women, and children were were seeking shelter from the gunfire in a ravine, we awarded three medals of honor to our soldiers, the U.S. soldiers, who specifically ran those people out of the ravine. Huh. Yeah, they don't, they don't, they don't teach that in school. Um, yeah. Yeah, they, so, well. So, uh, so when you look at, our, at our, our history during the 19th century, this was quite literally a history of ethnic cleansing and genocide, a century of ethnic cleansing and genocide, 425 congressional medals of honor. During this period, the the population of the U.S. explodes from about 5 million to, I think, over 70 million. During that same period, um, the the number of Native peoples shrinks from 600,000 to 250,000. When you take that history, literally from the 19th century, and you lay it over this, this claiming of a manifest destiny, and we are a city on a hill and claiming this land covenant with the God of Israel, and the land covenant is what gives you the right to commit genocide. This is how the church is complicit. The church, rather than speaking prophetically to the nation Mm -hmm. and saying this is not how we treat people, the church provided the theological cover. It gave the theological cover to commit these heinous acts by ordaining this as a God-blessed, a God-chosen, a nation with a manifest destiny. When you say it that way, that doesn't really sound any different from ISIS or the Taliban or anything else when, when you frame it that way. no difference. And in fact, let me tell you how, how deep this, this mythology runs. A couple of years ago, when, when Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, was here in the U.S., he was actually... This is during Obama's final year in office. He's lobbying against the Iran nuclear deal. 
And he is invited by, um, I think it's it's the, the, the Republican-led Congress to give a speech to a joint session of Congress. Now, he's talking to a very divided, a very, very partisan Congress, and he has to find a way to get everyone on the same page behind him. So early in his speech, he says to our Congress, because America and Israel, we share a common destiny, the destiny of promised lands. To applause. So he's is so is so he's posturing for his reason to be able to continue to arm himself and kill other people. So I tell people the United States of America and the, the current nation state of Israel have a very dysfunctional codependent relationship. So the United States of America needs Israel's Old Testament legacy of a land covenant with the God of Abraham to justify our treatment of native peoples and black people. And the modern nation state of Israel needs our current flourishing as a nation with a manifest destiny to justify their oppression of the Bedouins and the Palestinians. Mm. Uh, so how then, as, as hmm, I have so many more questions and we're running out of time. How, gah, we need part one and part two. How as a, as a pastor, or in my case, a father, or a deacon, or a school teacher, how do you involve yourself in a conversation that A, you don't come off as flippant, or arrogant, B, you don't come off as I often do as ignorant. I just wasn't taught this stuff, which is not fair to anybody. Uh, but more importantly, how do you come off without posturing yourself as offensive or defensive in, in this dialogue? So one of the things that I work very hard to do is I'm very clear that racism, white supremacy, all of our history of oppression is not a partisan issue. This is something that both the Democrats and the Republicans excel at and embrace. So if we just look at this last election, we had President Trump who won the election and he won on a promise to do what? Make America great again. Build the wall. Let's do this. Yes. <laughs> so this was, this was his whole theme of his election. Now, how did Hillary Clinton respond to that? Well, she responded to his Make America Great Again statement by saying, America has always been great. So they actually agree. Mm -hmm. Our past, our history, everything that we've just been talking about, they both agree that stuff is great. What they disagree on is, are we great right now? Hillary said yes, Donald said no. At the Democratic National Convention, President Obama jumps into the fray and says, well, America's great already. Cory Booker, an African-American senator, is on the main stage at the DNC and he's endorsing Hillary Clinton. And in his speech, he acknowledges the word savages in the Declaration of Independence. He acknowledges that natives and women are excluded from the Constitution. And he acknowledges the Three-Fifths Compromise. Now, most national politicians don't acknowledge any of those things, and he acknowledges all of them publicly on this very main stage. But then he ends that section of, that, of his speech by saying, but these things do not detract from our nation's greatness. And I was like, really? 
I would disagree with that. I would say our systemic racism and sexism and white supremacy absolutely affect our nation's greatness. And so this is the problem is, is this history, this is the, 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 the oppression of people of color is a bipartisan issue. Let me show you how deep this goes. I just published an article last week. Um, it's called The Abhorrent Lie of White Supremacy. So if, if, if your listeners will recall, this was when discussing immigration reform in, in a meeting with, with immigrants, President Trump, was it was reported that he used the term shithole nations in regards to immigrants from Haiti and Africa. And when I heard this comment and the, the backlash from it and all the stuff that came out, I, I went back and I had my, my children read a speech by another president who used white supremacist language frequently. I did this because I wanted my kids to understand the pervasiveness of white supremacy and just how deeply it's rooted in American history. So let me read this quote to you. While I was at the hotel today, an elderly gentleman called upon me to know whether I was really in favor of producing a perfect equality between the Negroes and white people. Great laughter. This is the transcript of a speech. While I had not proposed to myself on this occasion to say much on the subject, yet as the question was asked me, I thought I would occupy perhaps five minutes in saying something in regard to it. I will say this. I will say then that I am not nor ever have been in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of white people and black races. That I, and this is to applause that I am not nor ever have been in favor of making voters or jurors of Negroes, nor of qualifying them to hold office, nor to intermarry with white people. And I will say in addition to this, that there is a physical difference between the white and black races, which I believe will forever forbid the two living in terms of social and political equality. And inasmuch as they cannot so live while they do remain there, um, while they do remain together, there must be the position of superior and inferior, and I, as much as any other man, am in favor of making the superior position assigned to the white race. So there has this, to be dualism, and we is, are always superior. This is Abraham Lincoln. Oh. He said these words in a debate in 1858. In his inauguration in 1861, he made the statement and said, let me read this to you. Apprehension seems to exist among the people of the Southern states that by the ascension of a Republican administration, their property and their peace and personal security are to be endangered. There has never been any reasonable cause for such apprehension. Indeed, the most ample evidence to, to the contrary has all the while existed and has been open to their inspection. It is found in nearly all the published speeches of him who now addresses you. I do but quote from one of these speeches when I declare that I have no purpose directly or indirectly to interfere with the institution of slavery in the states where it exists. I believe I have no lawful right to do so, and I have no inclination to do so. And so how does that then relate to Trump with his words on those countries? Because this is the pervert. So Trump's words were rooted in the lie, the abhorrent lie of white supremacy. Okay. And I was showing my kids that white supremacy was a deeply held belief even by Abraham Lincoln. What was their feedback? How, what did, how did the they respond? The of white supremacy is horrible throughout our country. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Well, how did they respond to that? They, my son actually wasn't surprised. <laughs> <laughs> Again, so so my my kids have grown up hearing me speak, and they they know what I talk about, and they have no illusions of what this nation, the mythologies of this nation. But uh, I still want them to understand this because I'm like, I want you to understand how pervasive this lie of white supremacy is. That even this hero that our nation holds up, Abraham Lincoln, is actually from, and I, I in my article, I actually demonstrate his white supremacy because most people say over his political life, he, he softened and he changed and he became more to believe in the equality of blacks. But I actually demonstrate in this article, no, his white supremacy was was clear beginning with his speech in 1858 and even ending with the Gettysburg Address. Hmm. Yeah. And for those listening, I'll, that, I will find that article and it will be in the show notes. Um, it will definitely be there for, for people to read. Yeah. So my blog is called Reflections from the Hogan. My website is wirelesshogan.com. And the name of this article is The Abhorrent Lie of White Supremacy. Mm, yeah, and that's going to be published in, in February, um, or it was published in February. That, so, I, I published it, yeah. It's on my blog now. So, so then I want to end our time with, with, with hope, with, with Jesus, with, with I have so many more questions, Mark. I could probably talk for another two hours, but I don't think either your schedule or mine will allow it, but maybe a different time. How then... Do we, where do we, how can we find hope knowing that, well, at least for the next few years, we're going to continue to be extremely dogmatic in how we approach humanity, unless you have the right skin color. Um, but so then how do we as a church push that forward into, into some form of hope, whatever that looks like? Well, I'm convinced that the, the church has to get out of bed with the empire. And I, I make this point in my article which is the church has largely been either um, a, uh, a lobbyist or a protester of either party. The church isn't called to lobby or protest anyone. The church is meant to be prophetic. The church has but one God, one Lord, which is Jesus. We don't pledge our allegiance to anything or anyone else. And so the church needs to get out of, well, I'm right-leaning, and so I, 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 I'm, I'm lobbying Trump now, or I'm left-leaning, so I'm protesting Trump. I lobbied Obama. You know, we need to get out of this. The, the nation will never be Christian. There's no such thing as a Christian nation. That doesn't exist theologically from the teachings of Jesus or from the New Testament writers. Mm-hmm. And so we need, to, we need to, to stop lobbying and protesting and begin speaking prophetically, which means to both parties. Yeah. Now, to get there, to get out of bed with the empire, we need to acknowledge our complicity with the empire. And the way that we do this is through understanding these types of teachings. But then what I what I really call the church to right now is into a space of lament. And this is how Sun Chan and I got connected. He published a book about uh, two years ago called The Prophetic Lament. And in his book, he describes many aspects of lament. And one of the characteristics of lament is he says it's like being at a funeral dirge. So there's a dead body in the casket, and it's not coming back to life. You're at the funeral for but one purpose, which is to weep. That's why you go. You go to mourn the loss of the life of the person who died. That is a beautiful picture of lament. There are hundreds of years and millions of bodies 
of dead bodies and caskets because of the church's complicity with the empire. Before we can even think about fixing that, before we can even think about seeking forgiveness or repenting from that, we have to learn how to re- how to lament that. And so I call the church not into a service of lament, not into a song of lament, not into even a season of lament or into a period of lament. I'm calling the church into a season of lament. The, the challenge with the church and lament is it's almost impossible to lament when you believe in your own exceptionalism. Mm-hmm. That doesn't give you space to lament. And so I'm calling the church to give up our, our, our sense of exceptionalism to lament our complicity in this history and to stay in that season long enough. The beautiful thing about lament is when you see in the old Testament and the new Testament, when you see the people of God lamenting, he always, always, always shows up. He doesn't come quickly, but he always shows up. The challenge, because we never stay in lament for more than 30 minutes is we never meet God there. He never shows up because we don't stay there long enough for him to show up. And so I'm calling the church into this season of lament and saying, we have to stay here until God arrives. I I know he's going to come. I don't know how quickly I know it's going to be long enough to make us very uncomfortable, but that is really my hope and my prayer and my call for the church is we have to lament our history and we have to wait there long enough for God to show up. And I know he will. Mm. Amen. Amen. Well, let's end it there. Um, you did it a minute ago, but let's do it again. So uh, you're extremely active on social media uh, from all forms, it, it, it seems, and your blog as well. And, and for those that haven't heard your work or read your, read your work, or, or you, you're, you're easily accessible on YouTube, and I highly recommend People search you out on YouTube. Your sermons, especially your most recent one on Luke, I greatly enjoyed. So where would you point people to engage in this conversation and to uh, possibly engage with you or to use those vehicles as a way to engage their communities? Yeah, so my website is the best place to find all of my information. Um, Wirelesshogan.com, W-I-R-E-L-E-S-S-H-O-G-A-N.com. I post my articles there. I post my speaking schedule there. Um, that has links to my social media. I'm most active on Facebook and Twitter. I'm mm-hmm. usually on those things uh, at least once or twice a day, if not more. Um, I'm beginning to do more things with Facebook Live. I have quite a bit going on my YouTube channel. And my username on all social media is Wireless Hogan. That's my Facebook. That's my Twitter. That's my Instagram. That's my YouTube. That's my Blogspot. That's my website. Anywhere you look online for Wireless Hogan and you find it, that's going to be me. Well, thank you again, Mark, very much. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me, and I look forward to uh, engaging with you more on some of this. I'd love to have a follow-up to this conversation at some point. I just can't keep running away As the ocean is deep Thank you so much for listening. I would encourage, I would ask for your feedback. Please email us at canisaythisatchurch at gmail.com. Interact with us on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, Your feedback only helps to make the show better. If you have liked in any way or if you engaged in any way with any of the, the podcast episodes that you've heard so far, please consider going to our Patreon page. You can find that 
at canisaythisatchurch.com. There's a big, huge button up there. Your donations help so much. 